Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake gold. Cold blood is with us, Rob's king. I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Allie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the age of uncertainty and how very different it seems to be from the age of Aquarius, at least the version I saw on stage decades ago. I've been thinking about isolation, definitions of success, powerlessness, and striving. I've been thinking about family dynamics and about external threats and the uncertainty that they cause and what has changed, what has led us to the state of division, loneliness, and unrelenting stress, and what actions might we take to get back on track. My guest today is Dr. Madeline Levine. She's a psychologist, consultant, speaker, and educator, as well as the author of the New York Times bestsellers, Teach Your Children Well and the Price of Privilege. She's a co-founder of Challenge Success, a project of the Stanford School of Education that addresses education reform, student well-being, and parent education. Her new book, Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World, is a topic of our conversation today. Welcome, Dr. Levine. And thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you, Ellie. Call me Madeline, please. Okay. It's so nice to have you back on the show. I was thinking this morning, I think I have, um, you were one of my first interviews almost a decade ago, and I think I have referred to your work more than any other um, person I've interviewed in such a variety of discussions, because it always comes back to the sense of authentic self, right? Or the lacking of that sense. So thank you for that, giving me a foundation um, for all my conversations. Um, You've spent the last decade and a half traversing the globe, speaking to big audiences about the intersection of child development, psychology, and education. Couple questions. Are people listening and have your motivation and biggest concerns changed? And and if they have, was this the impetus for writing this new book? Thank you for that question. Um, So some people are listening not enough people are listening. And so when I, when I wrote The Price of Privilege, which was probably about 17 years ago now, when I started it and saw all these kids, I lived in Marin County, an affluent suburb of San Francisco, and they should have been doing well, but they weren't. They were depressed, they were anxious. And at, at that time, nobody was writing about them. One person, Sunia Luther, had done some research on it. So that I was just interested in what I was seeing in my office. And it turned out that everybody across the country was seeing some variation of that. So that was the impetus for writing that book. The impetus for writing Ready or Not is after 15 years of, as you said, traversing the globe with the same message. And it's not just me. I mean, you've had people on your show, Ned, Ned and Bill, and a lot of people who are very interested in getting kids to broaden their ideas of what success looks like, to lower the temperature on success as only a measure of um, uh, money and grades and materialism and stuff like that. There's there's an army of us out there doing that um, because it's clear that it was very connected to rising rates of anxiety and depression. So, you know, it's 15 years on the road and you look at the statistics and is it getting better? No, it's getting worse. And so, you know, at that moment you have two choices. You sort of throw your hands up and go, I guess that didn't work out. Or you start to think about, which is what I did. um, What am I missing? What are we all missing? Why has this been such a hard sell? Now, 
there are plenty of schools and communities and many individuals who have changed their point of view. So it's, it's not for naught, but on a institutional level, on a strategic level, on a national level, there haven't been the kind of changes that would make it easier to enact um, less homework, better sleep time. Um, so I decided, interestingly, that I had done enough talking to psychologists and educators that, you know, that's what I do. And I wanted to find people, a different group of people who had a different set of answers. Um, so most of that book is taken from interviews with the military or with CEOs, uh, JP Morgan's CEO, the vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, people who live in the middle of um, change all the time. And I think I did get some new ideas for sure. Um, I got confirmation that the ideas that we all had were pretty good. And then I had a very personal experience. So I'm gonna, I'll tell you what it was. Um, this is about six years ago, right before I started the book. And I needed a, uh, to refinance my mortgage. Um, and so I go to my bank, First Republic, and I get the head of the mortgage department. And my young, I have three sons, my youngest son, Jeremy, at that time, who's probably 19 or so, says, can I come along with you? And I said, sure. And um, so we go and we're sitting in, in this one, Carmen's office and going over mortgage rates and stuff. And my, and my son is just being who he is, which is a very attuned kid. And it, so twice over the course of the session, he looks at his watch and he says, Ma, I think, you know, your meter might be running out. Can I put a quarter in for you? And, sure, Jeremy. And then at one other point, um, my voice is scratchy, which you can hear now it's always scratchy from yakking so much. And so he said, hey, I saw there was some tea out there and honey, would you like me to get you some tea and honey? And then he turns to the head of the department and says, would you like a cup? And he brings in two. Anyway, and then she and I go back and at the end of it, I get my mortgage and she turns to my son and says, I want you to come work for me. I'm offering you a job. Now she knows nothing about him. She doesn't know if he's in college or not, if he wants to be in banking or not, she knows nothing. So of course I'm kind of like, what? And, and her answer, which I've gotten over and over again was, look, I can teach him. You know, I said, that's interesting. Can you tell me something about it? Um, she said, I can teach him the skills of banking. I cannot teach him to be that person. And that person is who I want sitting next to me, who's kind and nice and recognizes when I has, have a cold and gets me some tea. And that experience coupled with interviewing these other people said to me, oh, maybe there's a chance of framing this a little bit differently so that people understand it's not just for today. People, I mean, I have three kids. We think of our kids snapshot by snapshot, but it's really a movie, right? It's much better to think of your kids' development in life as a movie than a bunch of snapshots because you might get the, you know, the, the bad snapshot. And I thought that parents' anxiety about grades and what college you go to are tied to their hopes for their kids getting good jobs because the narrative has always been in this country 
every generation is better than the next. So my grandfather was a bricklayer and my dad was a cop and I'm a psychologist. That doesn't exist now for kids, that, that immediate idea that you will do better than your children. And, and it doesn't need to. And so I, I just was incredibly interested in whether or not we could reframe this in terms of what success looks like and what people out in the world were looking for in their hires. Um, so that that's a long-winded explanation. It's a full and, and wonderful one. And I love that you asked the mortgage agent, um, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about it? Because I'm guessing mm-hmm. that's why Jeremy is, is partially why Jeremy is the person he is, because you asked him that throughout his life. That's interesting. <laughs> Can you tell me more about it, right? The, the key to, right. to empowering parenting. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the difference from, um, you mentioned the, the difference in, in your parents' generation and yours. And, and I was thinking yesterday about the shift from a post-World War II optimism and this can-do attitude and, and to what we have now, which is this um, you know, constant sense of anxiety and a pervasive sense of pessimism and from that helplessness. And I'm just wondering, because I know you talk about it in the book, you know, how we got here how that shift happened in, in the, the last 50 years and how we got here. Yeah, so, you know, that's the question everybody's wrestling with is how did it deteriorate to this degree? I mean, part of me thinks the bifurcation of wealth in this country has a lot to do with it, that um, the, the middle class that I grew up in with a cop dad and a non-working mom was, you know, working class middle, we had a house, we had a car, Um, And I think for many people, and we've seen that intensified during COVID, uh, for many people, those things don't exist. And so I think there's a kind of anger about missing out, like why are people, you know, if you have money in the stock market, COVID's been great, right? For most people, COVID's been terrible. And most people don't have money in the stock market. So I, I think the bifurcation has really been a problem. And I think we've lost even more community. I keep thinking about the other things that I'm Jewish. So it's, it's always the Holocaust that people got through. I used to run groups for the children of Holocaust survivors. They got through, were they scarred? And Yes, but they got through or the depression or World War I or World War II. And, and the only thing I can really come up with is that the sense of community in the worst of circumstances helps people get through. So my mom used to have a little box called the Pushki on her kitchen. And every day, if we had a couple dimes or quarters, we'd put it in and then the whole neighbor, it was for Israel. And then the whole neighborhood got together to decide what to do with it. Or, you know, during the war, there were victory gardens or women went out together and sold war bonds. And, and, through this particular, through COVID, the lack of connection and community has been, I think, devastating. Um, but I think that was happening before. I think it was. And I was thinking, you know, I was sort of joking at first and thinking, oh, all our generation had to worry about was um, nuclear war, you know, which seemed really big. And I was like, wait, why was that somehow more um less overwhelming in a sense and less uh-huh. impactful. And I was thinking it was that element of control, uh-huh. right? That somehow that seemed 
within our power. And Uh we were all in it together. As you were saying, we have these, these communities um, Mm -hmm. of family and, and larger and that now, um, and I I was thinking about your book because I was thinking, oh, you know, is, is it a parenting book? Is it about kids or is it really a a, a combination of that's the consequence, right? But what really has created this situation, this dire situation for a lot of our youth? And it is this age of uncertainty. I thought that would be another, another title for the book. And, (laughs) and I was even thinking that this morning because we're on zoom. Um, I'm a Skype person and I didn't sleep well last night. And then I had some tea, a lot of caffeine because I didn't sleep well. And so then I, I'm a highly sensitive person. I love the word you used attuned. I'm a highly attuned person. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was already in a state of anxiety. And then mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure exactly had I set the invitation of a zoom upright and didn't know if you'd gotten it. And so I had to kind of pause because I'm like, okay, anxiety is becoming full blown. I can feel it in my body. I'm getting nervous. Right, I'm like, it's right. all impacting me. And I stopped and I thought about the things that you talk a lot about in your book is instead of veering into this sense of helplessness and powerlessness, and there's nothing I can do, I thought, okay, I've got agency, you know, what are some things I can take? How can I feel more control in the, in the situation, you know, and, and how can I remind myself that I'm capable? My son said he'd help. I can ask some questions <laughs> I can send an email and it'll all work out. And if it doesn't, it will be okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, okay. it's like we, we um, always ask in the office, what's the worst that can yeah, happen? Yeah. Yeah. And so we reschedule. What is different about how as as adults and then kids, we are, are feeling this sense of being overwhelmed and getting crushed under this relentless pressure to succeed? Because I think that's part of it, that we are lonely and operating from this external versus internal priorities. And then our children are paying that price. Right. But but I I think that's exactly right. But the, the other thing that has intensified it, I think, is the, the mistaken notion that if we protect our kids from all challenge, all discomfort, all unhappiness, that with the best of intentions, we do that because we love our kids. Um, but there, I think there are tremendous consequences to that as a parenting um, skill set. And I think the other thing we're seeing is kids who, uh, unlike my generation, I'm older than you, unlike my generation, who was brought up, nobody looked at my grades, nobody, I was allowed to do one extracurricular a semester. Um, There was one picture of mine, one grade, my first spelling test. That was the only thing I ever put up in the house. So there wasn't that kind of pressure. with all this pressure, I think two things. One, we have totally forgotten how challenging growing up is. Um, if you ask people, if you ask a group of people to come up with a memory, they almost all come up with a memory from adolescence. It's called the reminiscence bump. And it's that we remember those things because it is such a challenging time. So in addition to learning, you have to grow into a body and not bang against the walls as you walk around the house. You have to learn how to talk to the girl next to you or the boy next to you. You have to figure out what's interesting to you. You have to, if you're a a 12 year old boy in gym class, changing your clothes and you're pre-pubertal, you're standing next to a guy who looks like a man. I mean, the challenges are enormous. And so in forgetting that, we're forgetting some of the, the 
small developmental challenges that kids absolutely need to master and, and think we're doing them a favor. So, you know, an example I use in the book is the, the eight or nine-year-old who who's, gets frightened by a dog and um, comes home and is crying. The dog scared me. I don't want to walk there anymore. And, you know, mom has a couple of choices. In this case, mom said, don't worry about it. We'll go a different way. And it's exactly the opposite of what you do as a clinician. Somebody comes in and tells me they're afraid of a dog. I never say, well, avoid dogs for the rest of your life. You know, I'm always like, let's think about a dog. Let's look at a picture of a dog. That mom has to tolerate her child's anxiety, but her own, right? Because if your kid is anxious, like anxiety is catching, right? If your kid is anxious, you're anxious. So the short-term solution is walk the other way. The, the real solution is to show the child incrementally that they can master that situation. And I, I don't fully understand. We're pretty good with very young children. So I'm a brand new grandma. Um, and I, li- I like that. Congratulations. Uh, and I'm, I'm, you know, I watch my granddaughter learning to walk and she takes a few steps, she falls down. She takes a few steps. She fall, and we're all on the sidelines. Come on, sweetheart. Good job. And nobody is moving her legs for her. Nobody is saying, if you don't learn how to walk, you're going to be flipping burgers for the rest of your life. We are enthusiastic about her failure. I'm using air quotes, failure. And we know that the only way she'll learn to walk is if we let her keep falling down. And then little by little, she gets better at it. And, and that's the way it is on so many levels for kids. And we're not, you know, I get things like he's studying so hard or yes, four APs. How could I have him take out the garbage or how could I have him do something that makes him anxious? I talked to a mom, I think it's in the book about a mom who does her medical school students, laundry, cooking, clean, everything. And I get it, you know, I get the desire to make life easier, but it's, it's a kind of robbery of the capacity to learn control, efficacy. I can do this. Just like, just like you said, the feeling that about nuclear war, like we had some sense that we had some control. We didn't have total control by a long shot. We don't have control over COVID. That's why we tell our kids to wash their hands. Where can you find the control? And I think for a lot of kids, they don't feel that they have that too much. As you're speaking, I'm just thinking, and I didn't think about it this way. I was reading about this weird contradiction and dichotomy with the parents in the sense of, you know, yeah, there are these mothers are and, and fathers, but more mothers jumping in and, and rescuing and protecting and and trying to fix um, versus empowering. And um, and yet on the other side, you have parents bringing kids in. So they're doing the laundry for them. They're crossing the street. They're taking all these maneuvers and, and control and from, from a reaction from their anxiety and their discomfort with the situation. But then on the flip side, and I, I'm guessing they must be the same parents, um, bring kids in who are eight or 10 years old saying, okay, my, my kid is, you know, there's some aberrant behavior. He's ADHD. He's not focused. Um, he doesn't know what he wants to be. He doesn't want to take the extra class, you know, in, in right. school. Um, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, like how, how do these two um, behaviors fit together? 
so the the fact that you know in the book I call it accumulated disability. It's like all these experiences um, where parents have have traded short-term gain for long-term development. That's really clear to me. Um, there, there are plenty of kids who can't do this. Um, I have, I think in the book, this young kid who's eighth grade, ninth, no, 10th or 11th grade, he's taking advanced calculus, advanced calculus, not just calculus. Yeah. And every night his father graphs his, his test scores, gives him a, a every night. Now, this, advanced calculus, you would think that the kid could grab his own test scores, but the father is so over-involved in it that the kid is in my office wife at trichotillomania. He's pulled out all his eyebrows and his eyelashes. And, and so those kids, the end result of that over-investment, over-involvement, um, prohibiting natural development is kids often with anxiety disorders. And then, and then they end up in the office. Okay, we have a fork in the road, and I want to talk about both. Um, okay. And first, I want to talk a little bit about the kids. And, and I just want to mention that you have the best description about how middle school is the worst possible learning scenario for kids of, of ages 11 to 14. So everyone has to read the book and, and read that because it's... Um, what you say in the book, not long ago, teenagers weren't beaten down, they were pissed. And that adolescents ought, ought to be a natural match for our age of uncertainty, that traditionally they've been risk takers and creative thinkers who work, work well in groups and aren't satisfied with the status quo. And that that's not what you're seeing in reaction to mm -hmm. the uncertainty in the style of parenting. Um, what are you seeing? And then what are the ways of countering that? Okay, so um, what I'm seeing, you can't see, I have a little garden out back out of my office. And so over COVID, I had just a stream of teenagers coming and we'd sit with masks in the garden and talk. Who were depressed, who was smoking too much dope, who were drinking too much, who were anxious, who were whatever. And this is not in the book, but it's, it's really striking to me that um, the, the best intervention I made you know, I'd like to say it was my tremendous clinical skills. It really wasn't. It was saying to these kids, here's a list. We're in the middle of, of COVID, you're healthy, go help somebody else. And, and I made a list of various things that kids can do because they felt no control over anything. And they, they didn't have much control. They certainly didn't about education and stuff. And that was the most successful thing I did by a long shot, which was every one of these kids ended up calling somebody once a week, helping a kid who was behind. I mean, we're going to have a huge um, division of, ed of educational level in this country from the kids who had no Wi-Fi and parents working two jobs to the kids who had classrooms set up in their backyard. Um, so go help one of those kids. Um, deliver groceries to and just call somebody once a day to check in on them. And so all the fancy, like you don't feel a sense of control and, you know, we, what do we do? We call it nuts. You know, the, the circumstances under which people feel worse are nuts. Uh, uh, novelty, unpredictability, threat to personality and low control, right? And that's when just to get technical for a minute, the HPA axis kicks in, um, hypothalamus, para, uh, uh, 
hypothalamus, um, get the P for a minute, adrenals, pituitary adrenals, and that's your anxiety stuff. So we're right in the middle of being nuts, right? <laughs> Those things. And, you know, you can, you can do all the uh, psychologizing you want. Kids were feeling their lives were meaningless. And I mean, I'm of the opinion that we grossly underestimate the capacity of young kids. Um, they are capable of far more than sitting in a classroom and studying, and we don't give them the opportunity. So I would say most of the, you know, they, they weren't clapping and throwing up their heels, but it really took care of a lot of the anxiety and the depression was like, get the focus off yourself for now. It's always been on yourself, your grades, your performance, get it on somebody else, be of service while you have this opportunity. And I think it was successful. You know what, we do underestimate kids all the time. And I'm thinking we, we probably underestimate them as well in their ability to see the fruitlessness of many aspects of our educational system. There's a lot of conversation now about, you know, all the things we're teaching them, the way they're teaching them, it's outmoded. It's not what they're going to need in 10 years, let alone in 20 years, that the computer can do all the things so much more quickly and effectively than the things we're trying to teach kids to do, you know, by taking calculus and some of these other classes. Sometimes it's helpful to get them to think in a certain way, but I think they're realizing, hey, I'm doing all this stuff and wasting all this time that really does not have value for me right now and isn't going to have value for my future. Right. And uh, I mean, that's the hypothesis, I guess, uh, between ready or not, is that you've been sold a bill of goods, basically. Uh, and so have we. We've been sold a bill of goods by many different interests. And, you know, my husband always says, follow the money. But yeah, yeah. but but uh, there's enough evidence. You know, I have the head of hiring at LinkedIn saying, I can teach you the skills. Are there a few technical jobs where that's not the issue? Of course there are. But for most jobs now, just like my son, Jeremy, they're looking for people with collaborative skills, with good social skills, um, with flexibility. I mean, how big is flexibility right now? You're in school, you're not in school. You're in the office, you're not in the office. If you can't be flexible, you're really kind of screwed at this particular time in history. So those are the skills that, need to be taught and and challenge success of course is because it's a good project and it's research-based um, has done white papers on all of these topics and you know we find that the added value of one more AP class for some kids it's added value for a lot of kids it's not going to um, Denise Pope, I'm sorry, who's my co-founder, and I speak together a lot. She's a Stanford, Harvard, Stanford girl. I went to the State University of New York at Buffalo. So we're kind of like a living example of, you know, you grow up and those things which seem so critical when your children are young really aren't very critical at all. Um, does, does some of it open some doors? It used to totally. In my day, it totally opened doors. Does it now? No, because there was a time when Goldman Sachs, all those places that people think they want to work in and probably don't because they leave quickly, um, only went to the Ivy Leagues 
to find people to, that's not the case anymore. There's no, nobody that I spoke to, maybe there is somewhere in the country that limits themselves to only prestigious colleges because they say rightfully, then we get 10 kids, we hire 10 kids and they all have the same point of view. And when things are changing rapidly, you need a lot of different points of view. And even the value of the connections that one might have gone there for mm-hmm. um, with the internet and everything else, it's, it's not as, as critical as it may have been. Right. Um, so you have a list in your book of the things that get in the way of those qualities that we need to be successful and, and to be and, and successful. I'm, I'm putting, I don't know, air quotes or underlines or exclamation points or circles <laughs> or hearts or all kinds of things around it, which we'll talk about, but um, that get in the way of that unhealthy overachieving, the false self, social isolation, feeling powerless, a shaky sense of morality. And so now I want to jump onto the other fork of the parents, because you say anxiety is nothing new historically as hummed along in the background, but our anxiety is no longer background noise, Um, not for us. And then of course, from that, not our kids, but let's talk about the not for us part anymore. You know, I I appreciate that. I was talking, oh, I know challenge success had its yearly meeting then at Stanford. And for whatever reason, just like in the middle of doing my talk about kids, I'm like, you know what? I don't want to talk about kids anymore because I've spent my whole life doing that. And it is clear from the research that the greatest impact on a child is its parents. You're an anxious, I mean, I'm an anxious mom. Do I have a couple of anxious kids in there a little bit for sure? Um, Because there's a genetic component. You know, we say uh, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger. And so if I'm anxious, then, you know, my kids used to point out to me when they came home from school, I'd meet them at the door and say, is everything okay? You know, what kind of greeting is that? So, Did you survive? <laughs> I survived and, and, and they told me to knock it off, which I, which I did. But really, all my books are really parent books. Um, they're really about parents. They're, they look like they're parenting books and they look like they're about children and they are, you know, to some degree, but nothing matters more than your relationship with your child. Nothing. You know, there's all these studies from World War II, the Blitz of London and the kids who stayed with their parents and the kids who were taken out to the countryside. And they found shockingly at the time that the kids who stayed with their parents in the middle of the Blitz did better than the kids who were in the countryside. And I, I've thought about that a lot because it like, doesn't make intuitive sense. But I read this story of a woman whose house was blitzed and windows were blown out and her kid had lacerations and she takes him to the emergency room in London. And the first thing she says to the doctor is, we're so lucky. My husband's a carpenter. He's at home fixing the windows. And I wondered, I I still wonder, is that the kind of person who kept their kids with them, who felt that they had more control, had more optimism, but had more control than sending their kids away? Because to find out that those kids did so much better, that's really important. And the research in COVID also is, it didn't have to be the parents. This is for any of your moms or dads who, who are listening and had to work and felt like they should have been with their kids more. The research is as long as you had a consistent, available adult, reliable adult with your children, it's as good as you being there. So 
optimal is your family, is your parents. But if you have the same person coming every day, taking care of the kids, um, their outcomes are likely to be just as good. You okay, know, I'm, yeah. I'm getting teary over here just because I had never thought of my mom's British. My mom was sent away um, on a train when she was six with her younger sister was three. Their mm-hmm. train was bombed. They lost their trunks. Um, and I'm thinking in comparison to her cousin who stayed in London with her parents, um, their home was bombed and my mom, you know, and, and maybe to a difference of, you know, highly attuned or not versus personality, mm-hmm. but the difference in the anxiety um, that my mom had and that my, my, um, I call her my aunt, my great aunt had, I mean, I can just see it and I had never mm-hmm. thought they did it. What's the message you're sending with the child? You're maybe thinking, oh, I'm, I'm keeping them safe, but it's coming from, um, oh, I'm fearful. We aren't going to mm-hmm. be okay here. We have to run away. We have to be away. Mm-hmm. We won't be able mm-hmm. to deal with it. And so, yeah, I'm going to be thinking about that a lot. <laughs> um, I wish my mom was still here so we could discuss it. So, so, but there's a why, right? I'm thinking about you meeting your child at the door and, and saying that instead of, um, Hey, you know, you, you say the difference between, are you okay? Versus, Hey, I, I think you can handle it. Or what happened today? Or was there anything interesting? You know, and there's a reason that you're asking that question, right? Cause your experience that you you're having or have had, um, and I love the distinction that you talk about with, because there's balance in all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you talk about attunement and responsiveness versus shielding and rescuing and kind of the continuum. Um, are you okay? Versus, hey, I think you can handle it versus stop being a baby and just push through it, right? There's this continuum. Right. That's Well, that that's right. And a little bit, just as you were saying it, it strikes me, you know, we always have this graph of the optimal way of parenting, you know, and it's low support, high support, um, uh, low demands, high demands. And the best outcomes are from parents with both high demands and high support. And and it's different for every child, you know, this idea that you raise, you're the same with your children. It's like, whoever made that up didn't have three or four children because not even two not even two right you know you've mentioned um, sensitivity a couple times I talked about anxiety a little bit these are things that need attention and have historically not had any attention paid to them and this what I'm about to say is undoubtedly going to be unpopular but you're a sympathetic uh, um, interviewer all the attend right now in California, we're doing ethnic studies, um, and it, it's complicated and um, iterations and reiterations and stuff like that. But but I keep thinking that really, if I was going to put my money on anything for helping kids be their best selves, um, be authentic, have a sense of self be respectful of, it would be socio-emotional learning in the school, not as a class, but throughout everything, learning to deal with anxiety, learning what it means to have your best friend be particularly sensitive, learning how to resolve the differences, learning to celebrate the differences. And I, I think some of my fears are that the focus on the differences only exacerbates 
um, what we're seeing in this country right now, which is tribal. Um, so I'm, I'm going to get, that's something I'm going to get okay, involved I'm going to say something wildly unpopular in response, but before, because oh, you said tribal, and so I, you, you make a really important distinction between this new kind of movement of, oh, I've got to gather my tribe, and mm-hmm. how that's different than community. And I think it's important for you to, to, to maybe explain that. So um, tribe has a whole history, the use of the word tribe has a history, I think, of exclusion. And, and the tribe is based on exclusion, right? Um, so it's not that I think, you know, I'm always telling kids find your tribe at college, maybe I ought to change my language, but it's based on who's in, who's out, who's like me, who's not like me. And part of this is genetic. Babies understand the difference, can recognize the difference in color at I think four months, something like that. So there are aspects of tribal that were very important in keeping the species going, but it's, it's, it's rooted in exclusion, whereas community, hopefully, is rooted in bringing people into the community, into a sense of not we're better or we're, that we work together to make things better as opposed to we work together to vilify the other side which is what we're seeing now. I mean, I can't, I can't, I don't watch the news at all anymore, which probably makes me sound ill-informed. I watched it like everybody for a year. And somebody this morning sent me a um, video I had never seen. It's Steve Bannon using footage from um, Saving Private Ryan to talk to the point of overthrowing the government and why we should, why they should. And there are all the scenes from Private Ryan. So he's, he's equating it with his Normandy. He's equating Normandy with the need to overthrow the government and reinstall. I can't, I, it, it's unbearable. It's unbearable to, and it's not helpful. I mean, yes, we, we need to know it's happening, but no, we don't need to watch it. Because then we're creating synaptic connections in our mind from from that that we don't need. Um, So I'm thinking, again, it's the why that matters, right? Because as you talk a lot about in your books, um, Raising Children Well in the Price Privilege, we, the most important thing we have as humans is to be seen, heard, and understood. And that happens more and better with people who are like us in many ways. So they can understand us and see us and we can feel mm-hmm. a part of, of a, a group and that it that is, is in some ways matching us. And so it's the why we're doing it versus if we're doing it to isolate and exclude. And as you said to, you know, the us, it's, it's a continuing fostering the us versus them, then it's, mm-hmm. it's a negative impact. So, okay, mm-hmm. now I want to be wildly inappropriate in, in relation to what you said, because As you're talking about that need in education, I'm like, oh yeah, that's what we need. But then I see this huge wall up in front of me and I was going to talk about it in relation to ethical behavior because, um, you know, I was thinking about how can parents model ethical behavior because that's what we need for kids to have it when their values may be seated in a skewed model of success and and they don't operate from honesty and compassion and, and vivid engagement and personal accountability and common decency. So we're asking maybe this group of people to impart this 
uh, to their children through their behavior, but they don't <laughs> model that behavior because they aren't coming from that place. And I'm thinking about that in relation to what you just said about education. Yes, we need these teachers and these educators and these coaches to be um, modeling and understanding and, and um, engaging with uh, attunement and sensitivity and these things so that these kids can operate from and embrace and grow their emotional skills that will, again, some more air quotes, soft skills. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they, from what I've seen, even the well-intended often don't really understand mm-hmm. um, the, the basic essence of that to be able to then operate from it. Right. So I think, I think you're right. It's an uphill struggle. Um, when, when I work with a family, the first thing we do is values, exercises, games, whatever, because if that's not in place, just like you said, um, you can talk a good game, but if your kids don't see it, and I used to go to people's houses for dinner sometimes, because then I, you know, I'd kind of get to see what was really going on. And one of the things, excuse me, that was really interesting to me was I'd have two parents saying, we don't stress grades. We never talk about grades. It's it's not us. It's our kid. I come for dinner and they didn't talk about grades, but they did talk about, did you see he got a new Ferrari? Well, that kid's got a thing at Goldman's, an internship at Goldman Sachs. It was, You know, they had learned enough to stay away from grades, but the basic value system of material success was exactly the same. And and I want to be clear about something. And that is, I am not in any way saying good grades don't matter or or you shouldn't um, want your kids to have good grades or your kids shouldn't want to have good grades. It cracks me up every once in a while. Somebody will say to me, you know, Dr. Levine, you know, you're just trying to dumb down our kids and lower the bar, which strikes me as hysterical. I'm a Jewish PhD from New York City, married to what my own family calls a real doctor. And so like low expectations is not part of my tribe. It's not part of my culture. Um, So the idea of bringing all this information is actually to make kids as capable as they can be of being their best selves and learning as much as possible, right? You have an anxious kid, they're not learning optimally. It's interfered with, you're not sleeping well. You don't remember as well. You're depressed, you're amotivational, you don't learn as well. And so I think I, I, I want to say that I want to say this is in the service of having kids reach their full potential, not to not to dumb them down. And, and that's critical because it's the, the idea of the path towards success and, and also maybe the de- definition in some regards, but the path even we've gotten wrong. So even for that, that parent, it's, it's the, the thing that he thinks that gets you there is not what gets you there. That's exactly right. And if I ever had to, I'm not going to write a book about this again, but if I wrote an article, it would be about the persistence of the myth of success in the United States, which is mind boggling to me. Um, Most people I talk to, when I talk to people all over the country, um, didn't follow that path. I started, I have a slideshow and the first two slides, the, the things in the book, you know, the straight line, people who just got great grades, went to the best schools, did exactly what they were supposed to do and are happy with it. 
And then the other one's the squiggly wiggly line, which is what most people took. And I used to ask the audience and then write in the number, I'd say how many people um, took the straight path. And, it, and then somebody who could do math because I'm not good at it would figure out the percentage for me. And it was always between one and, and uh, 10%, always, every time. If I was talking to the local community, if I was in Hong Kong talking to Goldman Sachs. So this idea that you only get the Goldman Sachs was wrong. So I got to be able to write on the slide, on the straight line, one to 10%, 90 to 99%. And I think that's probably about right. Sure, there are some people who, who took, my brother wanted to be a veterinarian from the time he could talk, he's a veterinarian. I was um, a teacher. Because he's interested in it, right? Oh, he loved he it. He was interested in it from right. the get-go. Right. Um, yes. And, and my path was very crooked. I started in teaching. I was a terrible teacher. Um, and that, that's not false. That's true. But I was very good. I taught in the South Bronx of New York. It was a tough, tough neighborhood, but I was very good at going home with the kid after school, sitting at the table with his mother, it was always his mother, and trying to figure out how the kid could actually get an education. Because back then, if you carried your books to school in that environment, you got beat up. So so what was a fail? This is my thing about yeah, that's what I was thinking. Movies. It wasn't a failure. It led to the next thing. Right, right. You never would have discovered otherwise. That's right. So the snapshot, you know, if when when I do my own thing, it's like I I failed miserably at, at teaching, and I, I think about this a lot, Ellie. Because so what made it possible to pull something good out of that? Um, it didn't undo me. It's like oh, I suck at that, but I'm good at this. So I think this is what I should do. That kids need a degree of confidence in themselves and the notion that your kid gets confident by you telling them how special and great they are has been disproven over and over again. Kids become confident when they're allowed to master things that are challenging for them. And, and so if, I, if that hadn't been the case in my family, I might've been undone by failing miserably, really failing miserably at teaching but I wasn't because I had a degree of confidence. And I think that confidence came from this kind of working class background and an attitude that we're all in this together. Uh, everybody pulls their weight and we're gonna get through. And I think that attitude is the attitude we need. We're gonna get through, we're gonna help each other. And I, I think woven in there is that thread. I heard you say, you know, oh, I'm not good at math and this kind of shame wise over you because there's this also false sense now that we should be good at everything. And, you know, from the ACTs and the SATs, you, oh, well, you know, you're not good at math. You're not going to get into any good school. And oh, you didn't take advanced calculus. No, your ship is sunk. Um, you have th this really ridiculousness of this idea that to be successful, you need to be good at all the things and exceptional, not just good, but exceptional right, right. Or, or you can can't get your foot on the wrong and and the offshoot of that is this this idea that kids are just like this this helplessness and powerlessness oh well there's nothing I can do about it right that that you didn't have that that was the difference you didn't say oh god now I'm a failure at teaching so now nothing no life ahead of me no options yeah, I'm no gonna choices. take it to bed 
Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or I'll just have to keep teaching and just be terrible at it and and be a failure. (laughs) Some, you know, odd thing that there's, there's no, no other choices or options. I have no choice. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have a um, counter to that, which is so wonderful in your book. Um, And I was thinking, I don't know if this is actually just thought of this, this morning, I was thought ready or not. I was like, is she thinking of, you know, how we all used to play hide and seek ready or not here I come. And is is this feature coming? Of course. Do these kids even play hide and seek? Do they even know that people say that? ready or not here I come it just changed so much Um, but so the the foundational skills and um that they're so important now and they aren't the skills that we have been paying attention to um maybe maybe critical thinking in Mm -hmm. some aspects but curiosity creativity flexibility um educated risk-taking Mm-hmm. And that it's okay to be wrong sometimes and that collaboration and perseverance and, and I loved you putting in the like, not yet, you know, this into our, our vocabulary from right. parents to their kids, but in, in adults as well, right. because I see that was one thing that always struck me in this new generation of kids was they play tennis or they do something and they say, oh, I'm not good at it. I'm thinking you've done it once. Right. My, my sister was saying every person on the planet should have to learn an instrument so uh-huh. that, you know, it, it, you aren't likely to be good at it right away. And it's going to take practice. Right. That, that's a really good idea. You know, I I'll often ask an audience how many people feel they're good at everything. <laughs> and of course, nobody does. Um, and the calls that come in that are like, you know, I'd like to talk to you about my kids' grades. And, you know, I hear that. I know it's going to be nonsense much of the time. And it's usually something like my kid has four A's and a C. And I know they're not calling about the four A's. They're calling about the C. And I, the way I think about it was I was a very good English student and an and a okay math student, you know, not, not just average. And if my parents had gotten me tutors and made me go to, you know, math special services, that would have been time taken away from reading and writing. And, you know, the reality is in life, I'm a big basketball fan. We go to our right. It's a basketball term. You know, we go to our strength. I'm not, I'm terrible at math. I'm not a math and teaching. So I'm not a math professor. I write and I talk to people and it, my favorite, or I think the funniest thing anybody ever said to me, a parent raises their hand and after one of my talks and he says, you know, my daughter, she's really nice and she talks a lot though. And everybody goes to her with their problems and she's really good at solving them. But she, all she's doing is talking and kind of help. Like, what is she going to do with that when she grows up? <laughs> it's like, you're looking at it. <laughs> um, so this is why I say it's all about parents, right? If parents have that point of view, it's going to trickle down. And and I want to add that the thing that's probably most disturbing to me right now is that it was all about parents for a very long time, but too many kids now have bought into that as reality. It's not reality. It's a particular narrative driven by economic forces and anxiety and a whole bunch of things that are negative. And like and I said, if you're, all of your time is spent in that bubble, you are going to buy into the narrative because, you know, you're saying if, if your t- parents had, you know, 
pressed you to have math tutors and, and spend all this time in math, not only are you not going to be able to spend time on English and the other things, you're not going to be able to spend time playing. You're not going to be able to spend time with your friends. You're not going to be t- spend time exploring. Right. Me spend time any thinking, thinking about anything, right? So right. If you're in this closed bubble. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And that's, that's why I'm into using this concept of robbery, I, because that's what it feels like to me when you have parents draw out with their kid in the office before COVID, you know, what the kid is doing over the course of the day. And you see, there is no time, no downtime, no free time. And I'm convinced, like, I feel like I owe my career to Bob Dylan. When I was in high school, I came home every single day and laid on the bed after I said hello, had some milk or something, laid on my bed for a good 45 minutes and just listened to Bob Dylan. And one, it was relaxing. Two, it gave me a political perspective. Three, it was out of the realm of girls fighting over boys in high school. I mean, there's a million things and play, which is out of most of the schools now has been so documented. So I feel like- And sleep, sleep, sleep. (laughs) Sleep. So documented. And so documented. I got a, a shout out to Governor Gavin Newsom, who has made school start time 8.30 now, as opposed to the quarter to seven that it used And it to. only took 30 years. And now we and have it, one governor doing it. Yes. Yes. <laughs> hope. And that's it, the thing I'm thinking about when it's systemic. I mean, it's a huge exaggeration to say if you're in a dystopian world, right? But in the sense of when it's systemic, you only operate and make your choices and take action from within that structure. So, so it, I don't want to end there. I want to end with your <laughs> wonderful, <laughs> your wonderful, wonderful guidance um, in talking about, and I love you talk about this mother daughter relationship where they're both doing it. You bring them both in um, and where they're shifting their explanatory style mm-hmm. and how one shifts theirs from a belief that they can't do anything to, an, to a, a belief that they can change their circumstances and, and they restore their capabilities and, mm-hmm. and shift from this learned um, helplessness. And not only that, but it, it has wonderful consequences. You stop ruminating, you know, you, you all sorts of other wonderful things. Um, and the, the basis of this is CBT therapy and um, a shift of mindset um, from something being pervasive and permanent and personal. And there's this wonderful series of questions that you talk about. So I just wonder if you might in the last few minutes talk a little bit about um, what this therapy is and this approach and what some of the questions are. Cognitive behavioral therapy. So it's what any therapist uses with a kid with anxiety or an adult anxiety, depression. It's just a way of Re, reframing how people think about problems that got them into trouble in the first place. So, uh, you know, because I use the dog example, let's use the dog. Um, the kid comes in, I can't, terrified, I can't be near a dog, don't put me near a dog, you know, tears and everything. Um, and that's real, that, that anxiety is real. So what are you trying to do? Well, the goal obviously is to get that 10 year old or eight year old to be able to walk down a block if there's a dog there anyway, as, as long as they're not being threatened. And how do you get there? You get there by asking a bunch of questions. Um, tell me about the dog. T- tell me about, tell me more is the most useful thing we started with this today that you can say to a kid, tell me more. 40 years, it's almost 40 years of, of treating kids. I have never 
ever had a kid come into my office and say, you know, my parents listen too much. <laughs> Never, right? It's always my parents talk too much. So if we want our kids to be curious, we have to be curious as well. So that kid who's afraid of the dog, tell me about the dog. Um, you look really upset. How, how, how upset are you uh, on a scale of one to 10? You know, this is for a kid over like six or seven years old. I'm a 10. Okay. Well, you don't start by taking them to the dog. You start by, let's see if you can look at a picture of a dog. Oh, I could do that. Okay. Tell me, are you still a 10? Well, now I'm a nine. And, and then you walk by a dog in a car and then you walk down the street holding somebody's hand. And then, so you're asking kids what their evidence is for the fears they have and what they can do to attenuate those fears. So what's your evidence that that dog is gonna hurt you? And the kid goes, well, he's scary looking. And has he ever hurt you before? Has he ever been any kid on the street? You're trying to get kids to think critically about the things that make them anxious. And as you were talking, Ellie, I had in line with the earlier thing about um, uh, socio-emotional learning, I was thinking, who, you know, who comes to see me? Most kids with a diagnosis never get to see a therapist. So, which is tragic because it's expensive and, you know, it's one by one. Why isn't this in the school? You know, why isn't kids learning how to evaluate their fears and rate them and take small step, that kind of thing. And kids can help each other with it. I have moms helping daughters and daughters helping moms. It, to me, you are much more capable of being productive, of, of being of service in the world, of helping to heal, you know, the Jewish tikkun olam, healing the world, if you're not paralyzed by fear or anxiety or depression or any of that. And so, you know, the, the research tells us that optimism is one of the best things we can have. This is coming from a pessimist. So I've worked really hard <laughs> trying to become a little more optimistic. And instead of asking my kids who are all grown up, you know, is everything okay constantly? Now we had dinner last night, you know, tell me something really cool that's going on. What do okay, you I think forward? you're an anxious optimist because I think a hundred percent everything I've read that you've written and the two times I've spoken to you, it's like the false ideas we had about introvert versus extrovert. I'm just realizing we have the same about optimism and pessimism because mm -hmm. you and I are both worrying, anxious optimists. So we've got a new category. <laughs> well, ex except so yeah, like introverts and extroverts, it, you know, introverts, as you know, are. I'm an introvert mm -hmm. because if I'm in, having a problem, put me in my office by myself and let me think about it as opposed to calling up friends. Um, and people think it, you know, I look like I'm very outgoing and I am, but under, under pressure, I, I prefer to be by myself, yeah. but I'm, I'm going to think I'm about a shy, I'm, I'm a shy extrovert. You're a shy extrovert. Yeah. Okay. And I'm an extroverted introvert. So, so <laughs> what? 
of titles and names. Yeah. Um, but they're important. And, and I just want to end of- on this last aspect of, of the CBT therapy. And, and, and there's so many reasons it's so wonderful the way you talk about it in the book, and especially the mother-daughter doing it together because they're having fun. But I think one element, and we're back to exactly where we started with this um, development of the authentic self is the other important part that this exercise teaches us all, whether we're kids or we're 40 or 50, and it helps in every relationship, not just with our kids, but this is for anyone, this kind of um, uh, of self-reflection and then shifting. Um, I'm thinking, you know, in, in any kind of couples therapy or work problems or anything, this elements you just talked about, the listening and then the, the, um, the shifting a mindset from pervasive, permanent and, and personal is this aspect of it takes genuine relating to self. Um, mm-hmm. It takes slowing down and self-reflection and noticing, huh, how am I feeling? Right. You know, am I a four? Am I a 10? Um, right. You know, where am I, where is this coming from? What thought is a thought right, you know, proven or not. Um, and if you have no time during your day, no time, you don't get to do that. That's why I say, you know, that 45 minutes with Bob Dylan, that set the course for my life. Cause I just had time for self-reflection and thinking and big issues and all that kind of stuff. And if your kid doesn't have an hour a day of nothing, that's a mistake from my point of view, both as a psychologist and as an educator, that you need downtime to consolidate learning. That's why sleep is so important. You don't get sleep, you don't remember as well. And you need time to consolidate, especially in like pre-adolescence and adolescence, where like, you know, all hell's breaking loose in your body and your mind. Um, you cannot push through this and without some self-reflection. And, and the kids who now say, oh, Dr. Levine, you're so naive. You just have to get through it. Those are the kids I'm worried about more than anything because they're not going to get through it. You know, when I was in training, there was no such thing as a emerging adulthood rehab program. Now they're all over the country. And what are they for? They're for 22-year-old kids who never learned how to write a check, make a bed, cook an egg, and as a result, feel pretty crappy about themselves because they don't have the skills. We need a skill set. Nothing was clearer through COVID than if you didn't have a couple of tools in your toolbox, you were in trouble. And that's what's happening with these kids is they're, they're not resilient. And resilience is not genetic. There is no resilience gene. It's a skill set. And that's what we need to be focused on. I'm not saying we don't learn. Of course we learn, but we will learn better if we focus on the right things. And their brains are getting wired for later mm-hmm. um, serious bouts of anxiety and depression. Um, so when you forget that you aren't writing that next book about <laughs> this kind of path <laughs> to success, you have to have a power uh, a chapter in there about the power of the pause. Um, <laughs> so important. Yeah, so, the power of the pause. That's good. There's the title. I like it. I'm writing it down. So thank you so much, um, Madeline, Dr. Sure Libby, for this, this book. Uh, so, so timely and so important and so relevant, whether you have children or not. Um, for living in the world right now. And uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Ellie. Okay, thank you so much, Madeline. Thank okay, you so okay, much. Okay, thank you. We had a okay. good time. Yeah, we we redefined ourselves. Yes, okay, bye. <laughs> bye.